season two behold the podcast will return our all-seeing eye to the world of comic book adaptations and try to sort the super from the substandard who's we well i'm your host andrew and as usual i'm joined by my co-host mick hello and as oh, fairly usual at this point graham's here as well hello there we are in fact the same person just different incarnations Yes, we've bi-generated. Yeah, but that's, no, we're not allowed to talk about that because that's that's not an episode of Doctor Who that's within the remit of this programme. That's true. <laughs> that's true. We have a very narrow scope of things we can talk we about. We have. Yes. And we're going to stick to them. We aren't. I mean, on pop screen, we're going to do <laughs> the entirety of the first three seasons of New Who, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. Of course, starring '90s pop sensation Billy Piper. Correct. Who I, was thinking, I, was I recently about the punk band that Christopher Eccleston was in at uni. Where... Was Christopher Eccleston? Where David Tennant played Peter bass. Capaldi. No, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> it was called the Three Doctors. Um, <laughs> only they had to rename it because Tennant was in it, so it ended up being called the Fifteen Doctors. <laughs> so yesterday we are going to be talking about a specific episode of Doctor Who, uh, The Star Beast, which was part of the uh, 2023 60th anniversary specials, written by Russell T. Davies, uh, directed by Rachel Tulele, making a star return appearance on the podcast. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Which I'm quite excited about, because as much as it's not actually a good film, I do have quite a soft spot for Tank Girl. <laughs> and actually, she, she's done several episodes of Doctor Who. She's she's quite the uh, veteran. She's one of the show's big hitters yeah. at this yeah. point, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And most importantly, the reason we're talking about this is because it's based on The Star Beast, a comic written by Pat Mills and Dave Gibbons, for Doctor Who Weekly in 1980. Yes, it's not the only Doctor Who episode that falls under the remit of uh, Behold, not the only comics adaptation they've done, but it is the only one that doesn't feature James Corden. Yes, also I did a Google for Doctor Who stories based on comics and it didn't immediately tell me what all the episodes are, so... We're doing this one and none of the yeah. others. This this one, I think, is the one that's most accurately. I mean, you know, if you wanted to stretch the remit, you could say that Blink was based on a Doctor Who annual story and stuff like that. But you know, it's going to be like this, Andrew, all the time. Ah. Oh. Oh, it's already too much pedantry. We've got 60 years of law to share. <laughs> and we will. <laughs> With anyone who cares. And a lot who don't. Like Trekkers. Okay, good. Because I was going to say, sharing it with anyone who cares drastically cuts down our listener figures. <laughs> Yeah. Also, very exciting to note that in a rare win for comic book adaptations, Pat Mills and Dave Gibbons were both paid for having their story used. Wow. 
Yeah, wild, isn't it? And, and presumably I mean, they also got a contributor's fee for the episode of Unleashed that followed the episode. Quite possibly, yeah. I mean, Dave Gibbons is no stranger to having his name pop up in the credits of comic book adaptations, but this time he's done it with a writer who's happy to be associated yes. with the project yeah, as well. That must have been a first for Dave. <laughs> yeah, unless, unless of course he was Pat at gunpoint. And also, in that episode of Unleashed, the happiest I've ever seen Pat Mills being interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. By the way, as we're doing a Doctor Who episode, it's really good of you, Graham, to be a uh, to be accompanied by um, two of the stars of the Peter Davison title sequence, just hovering behind your head there. <laughs> What a great joke that our listeners on this audio medium will surely appreciate. It's fine. It's not the first. It won't be the last. (laughs) Also, just for anyone who doesn't know, Pat Mills and Dave Gibbons, both big names. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of the incredible things about Doctor Who Weekly, which is now Doctor Who magazine, that it launched in 1979 and pretty much instantly got most of the future stars of the British comic scene invasion of the 80s and 90s. Alan Moore has done Doctor Who Weekly comic strips, Grant Morrison has. It's a pretty prestigious list of people. It really really. is. Um, And of course, by by 79, when um, Doctor Who weekly launched, which was by Marvel UK when it first came out. Mm. Um, it was um, after they'd already had major success with 2000 AD. You know, That's so it true. wasn't like it, yes. it wasn't like they desperately needed the work because they had a successful independent comic of their own. Yeah. Yeah, hadn't considered it that way, but you're right, they're a, they're a hell of a get for a fledgling comic. And, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like the modern era where merch is king. You know, spin-off magazines mm. from shows didn't really exist. Marvel kind of kicked yeah. it off with Star Wars Weekly um, mm. a couple of years earlier. Um, and Doctor Who... Doctor Who magazine, or Doctor Who Weekly, um, when it launched in the US, was actually part of Marvel Presents and was usually assisted with someone like Thor or Hulk or something like that. That's good. I like that. It's quite weird to think that there is a parallel universe where the Doctor gets folded into the MCU (laughs) because it happened enough in the comics. He did occasionally meet the Fantastic Thor or the Incredible Hulk, so, you know, could have happened. Well, those were the strips that were done in... Marvel characters. Those were the strips that were done in the Marvel Presents comic that were then reprinted Mm. over here as part of the normal run. And... So yeah, one of my favourite obscure Marvel characters is a guy called Death's Head. Yes! Who is a robot bounty yes. hunter. Well, sorry, freelance peacekeeping agent who started off as a villain in the Transformers comics, met the Doctor from Doctor Who, got shrunk down to human size, and now is a character in just the regular Marvel universe. <laughs> Yeah, I absolutely adore yeah. Death's Head as well. It's fu- it's funny how he sticks around in the heads of comic book readers of a, a certain generation, yeah. isn't yeah. he? Um, but yeah, so um, 
the, the, the comic strip as well element of Doctor Doctor Who has been around in comics for donkey's years, probably since about 1965 was when the first annual yeah. came I out. I mean, just before you get too ahead of yourself, Sorry. Mick, it's time for me to ask the question. <laughs> so, guys, how familiar are you with Doctor Who? Well, <laughs> it's funny you should ask that, Andrew. It all started when Sidney Newman, head of drama and serials at the BBC, <laughs> was asked to create a new adventure series. I'm going to cut in uh, just on a point of principle. Uh, and <laughs> No, I... Uh... Just like last spring, I finished a project where uh, me and a few friends rewatched the whole of classic series Doctor Who uh, using a random number generator to pick what we watched. Because we'd seen a lot of people try a full series rewatch and you just get stuck in an era that you're not keen on and it just falls yeah. apart. People stop doing it. Uh, but I, I can honestly say that now I have watched as much as still exists of every single Doctor Who story ever, and I have concluded that it's not good. What? <laughs> right, right. That's, Get out. that's a lot quicker than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed the show, you can find all our episodes on the feed or wherever you get your podcast. So, as I was saying, yeah. when the BBC approached the head of drama and serials, Stanley Newman, to create the greatest science fiction television marvel ever... <laughs> Um. No, but uh, what what I I will say this. This is something I very sincerely believe. I I believe that Doctor Who is the greatest TV series ever made. I also think that if you don't like it, you should be able to acknowledge that Doctor Who is, in a way, the show that uses television to its fullest extent. Yes, that. There is no other show that has covered such a broad range of different styles and genres and has taken such advantage of the fact that television is a weekly format, that every week is is a restart, essentially. And that maybe doesn't get appreciated as much as it should because the fashion in television now is to take something that would make a good two-hour film and just ruthlessly flog it to death until no one gives a shit anymore. Uh, But I I do think that there is something in Doctor Who's ambition to cast its net as broadly as possible that makes it the best of what television can achieve. Well, I think if you you think about the creative teams involved, the producers, directors, writers, actors, etc., that very mm. premise, there's a guy with a police box that can travel mm. anywhere in time and space, means you can tell any story. Yeah. And that's got to be the greatest playground for creatives in the world. Yeah. yeah. Just as long as wherever in time and space looks like a quarry in Wales. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Most planets do, yeah. Andrew. Have you not seen the footage coming back from the Mars probes? So, but but this is the thing. If you take if you take another franchise like say Star Trek, they've kind of mm. got to crowbar everything in. If they wanted to do if they wanted to do a sort of Regency type Jane Austen type story, how do they crowbar that bar that in? If it was a Star Trek Next Gen episode, it would just be on the holodeck. 
Whereas mm. Doctor Who can actually just land in Regency Britain and have that story. Um, I think that's, yeah, what, absolutely. that's what gives it. And it's always done that. It's, it's tried Westerns, it's tried Roman epics, it's tried um, proper space opera, it's tried smaller scale sort of siege invasion type stories. It's run the full gamut. Not always successfully. And I will grant you that there is an awful lot of tosh in its 60-year history. <laughs> but, <laughs> I think if you were going to... I think if you if you were going to give uh, an overview of Doctor Who for effort, it's the little show who could. Absolutely, yes. It was only meant to run for six weeks, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's value for money, isn't it? When you buy something that's meant to last six weeks and you still go 60 years later. I mean, you've, you've also got to question the wisdom of the people who, when given a show that was only expected to run for six weeks, commissioned a seven-part story as the second one. But... <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, can you write us a seven-part story, but bear in mind, we might only show two of them. <laughs> I mean, it's good that that kind of optimism about the future is what really defines Doctor Who, but, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. But I still think, even 60 years on, and if I could watch it on the iPlayer, I would, that first episode of An Unearthly Child yes. um, is probably the finest 25 minutes of television ever. Just as a standalone, just on its own, in terms of setting up a whole world. It's got everything. It's got mystery. It's got science fiction. It's got a, a, a mystery that the viewer wants to solve, along with the characters. And it's got that grounding of, these are ordinary people. These, this is a school teacher and another school teacher showing concern for a pupil. Remember when that used to happen? Anyway. <laughs> I mean, there's a slight dubious nature. I mean, it probably have to be sort of seriously edited now and move, remove all that dodgy sort of following her own from school kind of thing. But you know, <laughs> well, for fortunately, Steph Corburn has taken that massive into his own hands. In, in, indeed, um, boldly uh, editing the whole show out of it. <laughs> I think I've said this to you before, Mick, but isn't it refreshing to have a Doctor Who anniversary where Ian Levine is at most a second heavy yes, villain? Yes, indeed. More of a henchman, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, we're sorry. Th those were names. <laughs> <laughs> those who listen to this show and who watch Doctor Who, have you got that Venn diagram to hand? They'll do. I mean, yes, and it looks like they're both on the show with me right now. We, sh we should have got <laughs> Keith on. We should have got Keith on. Yes. He's talking about Labour leader Kia Starmer, <laughs> listeners, who is uh, a massive fan of this and weirdly know the Doctor Who story. So. So, anyway, you two are safe to say you two are fans of Doctor Yes. Who. Yes. We could do it if, if you want. If you want, um, for any sort of paywalls that you might um, 
want to in invoke in future. We could do a season-by-season -season rundown of incidents leading up to the Star Beast. God, yeah, you'd have to pay all that, wouldn't you, just to protect the wider public? <laughs> <laughs> There's possibly paywall, but we could maybe do a... not set an amount that would actually unlock it. We could maybe a sort of we could maybe launch. You could do a sort of reverse paywall, a sort of protection racket, where if you pay us money, we won't give you the opportunity to listen oh, to that. Good call. Um, oh, I like it. Or we could, we could do we could do a new podcast that's like every season of Doctor Who in five minutes. So we, we take one <laughs> season at a time, and in five minutes we describe the plot of every single story and all the major characters that pass in and out of the Doctor's life. That would be extraordinary, like reduced Shakespeare yeah. company levels of, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but that's Star like Beast, well. yeah. <laughs> Just not to the kind of encyclopedic degree that you do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was. Well, I've kind of watched some of the older ones growing up, just random whatever was on. I guess UK TV Gold at the time. There's a throwback. It yes, would be, yeah. who had the worst editing of episodes. I, rem I remember watching Robot, Tom Baker debut story, uh, one Sunday morning, and there's a scene. Where Tom Baker runs out of the unit lab going, Really, Brigadier, you must develop a sense of urgent. Then there's an ad break, and it starts back with him going, See! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that feels like it must have been deliberate. <laughs> yes, it's very uh, shiver with anticipation. <laughs> <laughs> That being said, I suppose like today's podcast listening audience are well adjusted to just sentences being cut off by adverts. Yeah. So maybe yes. they wouldn't care. No, that's true. That's true. Maybe that was it. UK TV Gold was way ahead of its time because these days it's just called Gold, isn't it? Mm, Which yeah. apparently sounds for go, uh, go On Laugh Daily or something. That's interesting. I didn't know yeah, that. Because they, they, they do show things that aren't comedies, for which that would be slightly inappropriate branding. I know, but that that was the uh, they did a sort of rebranding when they were when their main stock in trade was uh, reruns of Keeping Up Appearances and Only Fools and Horses marathons. And then Dave sort of muscled in on the comedy yeah. repeat territory, and now it's you know, go on, have a chuckle at Secret Army. <laughs> Maybe they just thought, oh, Jeffrey Palmer, he's a famous comic actor. <laughs> the Secret Army? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Or was that fairly Secret Army? Oh. The Star Beast. Anyway, the Star Beast. <laughs> yeah, we should probably yeah. talk about that one, shouldn't we? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Because it's a good it one, is. I think. Yeah. Oh, no, you've already spoiled the second half of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we rank this on our Doctor Who list of adaptations? Number one. Unfortunately, it is also bottom of the list. Yes. It's only it's only bottom of the list of ones that don't include James Corden. 
Mm. The bottom gets a bit more competitive when Corden's a factor. Yeah. Anyway, let's do a synopsis. Go on then. Let's move on from James Corden's competitive bottom <laughs> and synopsisize this story. Yep. So, uh, as always, full spoilers ahead. And just before I go into the actual episode spoiler, got two bits of important information to know going in. So, the first is that during the run of the 10th Doctor, who was played by David Tennant, he had a companion called Donna Noble, who's played by Catherine Tate. Uh, after, after a series of adventures, Donna absorbed the Doctor's memories and turned into the Doctor Donna to save the world. But her brain wasn't able to hold all that information. So to save her life, the Doctor wiped her memory and then just essentially dropped her back off on Earth where she lived a normal life. And then several years later, the 13th Doctor, played by Jodie Whittaker, regenerated, but rather than gaining a new appearance, as is traditional, uh, she turned into the 14th Doctor, who's played by David Tennant again. And just, I'm, I think that's right, isn't it? This is the 14th Doctor, yes. not the 10th Doctor again. That's right. Mm, uh, that there's a lot of references correct. throughout the three specials to why this face. And he wouldn't hmm. say that if he was actually the 10th Doctor. That's it all, man. I mean, it's, it's probably going to be a bit of a culture shock having your face change. And probably not as I much as the one after... when he turned into a girl. Well, yeah, yeah, that would be a definite why this face moment. I think going to bed like looking like Matt Smith and waking up looking like Peter Capaldi is probably a bit of a shock as well. I think we've all had nights like that. <laughs> <laughs> 18th, 21st, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then sometimes you look at that old picture of that really one weird day where you turned into John Hurt. Yes. <laughs> but it's fine, we don't talk about that. <laughs> so, Mr. Harbeast. Uh, yes. Immediately after regenerating, the Doctor arrives in London and bumps into Donna who doesn't recognise him because of the aforementioned memory wiping. But the important thing is, she shouldn't meet him because if she ever remembers her time with him, she will die. He knows are that. you doing the synopsis or am And I? he knows that. It's important. Can I, can I continue? Yeah. <laughs> the Doctor leaves before Donna remembers him, as doing so will cause her lost memories to return, killing her. Oh, yeah. There, you're happy, Mick. <laughs> You couldn't wait a sentence. I know, I know. Look, I'm a walking Doctor Who encyclopedia and I can't help myself. Oh, God, this is just going to be the next hour, isn't it? Yep. Just, I'm going to say something. Mick's going to push his glasses up his nose. Just you um, Actually, I think you'll find Just you wait till you get to the bit where you say <laughs> Doctor Who, which has always been a children's show. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who, which is the character's name, his first name is Doctor, his last name is Who, <laughs> joins up with Unit, whose name is just Unit and that's not an acronym for anything, who are examining a crashed spaceship. Meanwhile, Donna's transgender daughter Rose, played by Yasmin Finney, 
discovers the ship's escape pod and its inhabitant, The Meep, who is physically played by Cecilia Fay and voiced by Miriam Margulies, who, once again, I have written as Miriam Margoyles. <laughs> <laughs> so, The Meep explains that it's being hunted for its fur by the insectoid Wrath Warriors, which is vaguely how you pronounce it. I, it is. I, don't think there's that much consensus in the episode how no. it's pronounced, is there? I, I think it, it is meant to be Wrath, but having seen a bit of behind-the-scenes stuff, it's like that no one could really remember how to pronounce it. This stuff was meant to be written on a comics yeah. page, not said by actual people. So, yes. It's like it's like in yeah. the 90s when every early alien in sci-fi, their name, when written down, had an apostrophe in it. Yes. And a Q and a Z. And you were supposed to remember how to say <laughs> You weren't sure whether it was an alien race or a sneeze. <laughs> See, I feel like this is why the MCU hasn't used that many actual scroll, scroll characters. Because <laughs> the names are all like Clert and Slugrut. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, Meep, it's been printed by the Bugly Wuggly guys. So, Rose <laughs> takes it home and hides the Meep with her stuffed toys. Uh, back at the Crust spaceship, the unit soldiers are hypnotized into protecting the Meep. The Doctor follows them, is able to save the nobles and the Meep from the ensuing fight. As they escape, though, the Doctor realizes that the, the Bug guys are only using stun guns. So he organises a trial for the Meep and learns from a couple of officers that they're actually intergalactic police officers here to arrest the Meep, trying to take over the galaxy. With its cover blown, the Meep kills the two and escapes to its ship, beginning a power-up sequence that will destroy all of London. The Doctor and Donna sneak aboard the ship, but are separated in the engine, leaving the Doctor unable to fully disable the ship. With no other choice, the Doctor uses, Donna, uses Donna's Winter Soldier trigger phrase to give her her memory back, <laughs> allowing her to use the Time Lord odd knowledge to stop the ship. However, Donna doesn't die, and it's revealed that the part of her Time Lord powers were passed down to Rose when she was born, allowing them to both harmlessly expel the energy without it harming either of them. The Meep is arrested, and the Doctor and Donna head off in the TARDIS, only to crash into a spaceship which is on the edge of space and also well outside the remit of this podcast, so we're not going to talk about it. That's good. <laughs> that was weak. Oh, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I could put together an argument that Wild Blue Yonder is a adaptation of Jack Cole's Plastic Man. For, for me, it was just too close to midnight. It is very midnighty, but we can't talk about no. that. Because of the embargo. Yeah. Even though I did actually enjoy it, just it's just a nice self-contained episode. They'll, they'll um, he'll be he'll be complaining to the BBC that we went off script. <laughs> anyway, yes. this one that's actually based on a comic. Yes. Yeah, good in it. I, I really yeah, enjoyed it. Um... What's everyone's history with the Mills slash Gibbons joint that it's adapted from? Well, I I was there queuing as an eleven year old to buy the comic. So Yeah. You know. Um I think I've got it somewhere upstairs in a collected edition. Um 
So yeah, I I always I, as I recall, it, the original comic strip is set in a the recurring fictional village of Stockbridge. It isn't. isn't it? Uh, I reread it today. Um, I'd read it before, um, oh, oh, but gets not mentioned. I'm sure of it. Perhaps, yeah. I, I think yeah, it, I it's think... Black Castle. Yeah, because it's something one. similar to that. Because I, I read it for yeah. the first time about six hours ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I also read it as a kid. I just read it uh, when it was reprinted in the short-lived but excellent Doctor Who magazine classic yes. comics uh, spin-off. Yes, that, um, I think that's possibly the edition I've got upstairs. Hmm. Yeah. And it, it, by that time, it had already been sort of canonised as one of the best ever Doctor Who strips, and that sort of build-up could have really crushed it had I not read it and thought, yeah, this is excellent. And when I read it again this morning, having, as I say, not read it since I was a kid, having certainly not read it before the the Star Beast, the television episode came out, I thought, yeah, this is actually still really, really strong witty, entertaining yeah. stuff. Perhaps unsurprisingly, I would say it would feel quite at home in a, a 2000 AD. Yeah, <laughs> yeah funny that, that, isn't it? Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that that was how British comics were in the 70s. Um, mm. I mean, certainly prior to Doctor Who Weekly coming out, um, the adventures of the Doctor in comic strip form were confer- uh, confined to the pages of Either the Doctor Who annual, which started in 1965, or mm. they were confined to the pages of comics such the as countdown. TV Action, Countdown, yes. TV Comic, all of which went through various mergers and transformations and became. <laughs> All of which, we're missing the important part, all of which were written by people who had had the vague concept of Doctor Who explained to them, but had not seen an episode or indeed read any science fiction, uh, which is sometimes delightful. They are sometimes genuinely psychedelic. The the, the artists in those uh, comics as well had also had the various TV incarnations of the Doctor described to them by a partially sighted person. (laughs) <laughs> they, they definitely seem to think Patrick Troughton was some kind of Toby jug. That seemed to be a recurring thing that no one could get right. I mean, I've seen pictures of him, and that seems fairly accurate. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was the case right up until Fortal. And, and the, the other problem was that um, because of the way that the licensing worked, they very rarely got to use any familiar creatures from the from the comics. Getting the mm. license to use the Cybermen for a story or the Daleks would blast their budget for like the year, and then everything else will yeah. be indescribable alien from Planet X. Yes. So they rarely they rarely had the option to uh, include any of the TV companions either, but, although that continued for a bit in Doctor Who magazine, yes, which is why it's Sharon, I believe, isn't it? It's Sharon, yeah, which is is interesting because there's an element where Rose in the TV version kind of maps quite nicely onto mm. Sharon. But Rawls has to exist in a completely different context to 
reintroduce Donna to the series. So that's kind of interesting, I think. Um, so yeah, but I think the thing was that um, a lot of a lot of the artists and writers were were sort of jobbing contract pens for hire, if you mm. like. So what would happen is they'd have story outlines, and then Marvel would say, "But Dave, have you got something for Doctor Who Weekly?" Well, I've got this pitch yeah. that didn't quite work for 2000 AD, so I'll just scrub Judge Dredd out. <laughs> we'll, we'll cut and paste Judge Dredd for The Doctor, and we'll just redraw the backgrounds. <laughs> but it it never feels like that, does it? I mean, compared to those like Countdown and TV action strips, what must have made this, the Star Beast mind-blowing at the time, that I can only guess at, was... Um, the fact that it's a Doctor Who comic strip written by people who really seem to love Doctor Who and know what kind of jokes Tom Baker makes and can throw in a reference to the Black Guardian. Yeah, and and that wasn't what the strips had been like before, no, not by and, a long and I way. Think, I think that's the thing. They, they'd have had the storyline and then they'd have adapted the, the actual dialogue. But um, mm. I think people have this misapprehension that Doctor Who, when it came back in 2005 was suddenly being written by people who'd grown up with and loved the programme. But, you know, people like Pat Mills and Dave Gibbons were probably watching it when they were at college. You know, yeah. in that, you know, that's what college students do, isn't it? They watch sort of family-oriented... Kids shows, Mick. It's they not watch a kids show. shows. It's never been made by the children's <laughs> department, and well, you know it. Ah! Oh man, you'd think I'd get tired of pushing that button, but I never do. He does the same with uh, Zack Snyder. <laughs> yes. Um, so, um... Yeah, yeah, Zack Snyder definitely makes kids' films. <laughs> 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 or at least has the emotional maturity of a child. Yeah, so. Um... <laughs> yeah, so. Uh... Where was I? Yeah, so they were probably the first generation of fans writing this stuff yeah absolutely and you can see it in some of their structuring decisions like i hadn't appreciated before i sat down and reread this how much sort of sharon's status as a companion is set up using a bit of misdirection which is the character fudge who appears like briefly in the TV version and it's a nice nod back to the comics but in the comics he has a really prominent role and when I was rereading this I thought oh yeah you're meant to think Fudge is going to be the companion isn't he? He's the proactive one, he's the one who knows science fiction and says oh it must be a space alien, it must be a spaceship and it's actually quite a nice sort of piece of subterfuge when it turns out that Sharon is is actually the one who's really going to save the yeah. day. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's the thing. Because I think the difference between people like Pat Mills and Dave Gibbons, who, as we mentioned, were already established by this point. Um, yeah. Where the new adventures and missing adventures that came out in the dark wilderness years, um, which mm. was what is generally people think of as being the first generation of fans writing. Yeah. They they genuinely loved the show but weren't 
caught up in all the nitty gritty lore and stuff like that. So there was still that element of fun hat with it. And that... Are we thinking of the same new adventures? Because I mostly remember like a series of people who at best would go on to write some amazing things, wanking on and on about how King Peladon shagged an Ogron or some shit uh, that I could not care less yes. about. But but that's that's my point. They got bogged down in all. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, know, that makes. Oh yeah. well, you know, this happened. I'm going to cram as many of the things that I remember from this show into one story, regardless, yeah. Yeah. because I know that people like me will go woo every time it happens. Whereas, yeah. you know, there's nothing familiar from Doctor Who in this except the Doctor really, in the comic. 100%. You know. Yeah. It's not leaning on the path. And I, th- and I think that's part of why, you know, I've read Davies's interviews about it and why he decided to adapt, to, to make what on the surface is the very odd choice of relaunching the series and celebrating its 60th anniversary by adapting a comic from about 40 years ago which you know yeah when you spell it out sounds like an absolutely ridiculous decision to make um but he he said look um it it was the the doctor who at the time that felt most like good traditional baggage free doctor who tom baker's last season which has some wonderful stuff in it but is very sort of doomy, is very obsessed with abstruse yeah. concepts in theoretical physics, can be quite dry. And suddenly here you've got this situation where a spaceship crashes in a very boring steel mill yeah. town and you see a newsreader talking about it in between bits of news about strikes and an ordinary girl and her friend go out and solve the mystery. Yeah. And you think, of course Russell T. Davies likes this, because that's exactly how he brought the show back in 2005. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- and I think that that's the great thing about it. But what it also shows, I think, is... And I think... I think the flaw with showrunners since Russell's original run is that they've not been great sco- storytellers. Even Moffat is in a short Mm. format. If you think of Mm. Russell's original run, some of the Mm. finest episodes are Stephen Moffat episodes. Yeah. When you think of his whole run as showrunner, there's a lot of loose ends, meandering storylines that actually, when you look at it, don't actually go anywhere. Mm. And there's not a great deal you can refer. And I think that's it. Russell Davis, because he's capable of reining in a story and making it a great storytelling experience, he recognises that in other formats as well, and has gone, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting because I, I think the showrunner model is is a not a great model of television in general, and it's certainly a bad model for this particular yeah. show, which, you know, ideally should 
use up all of your ideas and it, i think it's very stupid to say that the same person should be writing like five to seven episodes mm. of it a year but hey ho this is how all television is made yeah. now um so i think they've all got flaws and i I've, i have sometimes like dreamed of oh wouldn't it be great if you know vina patel or sarah dollard was the showrunner and then i have to stop myself and think well i'm thinking that because they only wrote two episodes each. Yes. I'm sure if they were writing seven episodes a year, I'd be like, oh, God, here comes Dollard with her usual ticks again. Yeah. But I don't know what those ticks are because she hasn't written enough of the show. Therefore, I love exactly her work. Yeah. So I, I, I'm kind of... I'm, I'm, I'm easygoing about which showrunner is the best now. I think it's... You know, they have all done as good a, a I, job as they can I, with a fundamentally poisoned chalice. Russell's first run as showrunner, and yes, you had the the majority of the stuff being written by the showrunner, but mm. he just seemed to have more of a variety of writers that came in. He seemed to let go of the reins yeah. a bit more than the others. Yeah, Moffat definitely stuck to a core team, which I think can make his seasons feel more consistent, but sometimes at the expense of variety. You know, I think they they all have strengths and weaknesses that balance each other out. I wish there was, you know, a showrunner with the heart and the popular instinct of Davies and also the ambition and originality of Moffat, but you know, well, you say that the original storyline was Iron Legion. That was that for ambition. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So, we digressed there, didn't we? Well, let's let's take it back round. So, what what do you think? We've talked about what we think of the Starbeast as a comic. Yeah. What do you think of it as a Russell T Davies script? How do you think it works for his strengths? I I liked it because. It ties up a loose end that's been hanging around for a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think also the important distinction is a loose thread that people actually want to see resolved. Yes, one that people care. Yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the crucial thing. <laughs> that is a mistake Doctor Who was made yeah, in the past. Pick up on yes. a thread that no one actually gave us stuff about. Um, <laughs> but I. Th- I'll be honest with you, I thought it was a great episode. And I thought the 60th Mm. anniversary special, without being a multi-doctor one, which is the traditional way of doing it, I thought it worked Mm. great. Um, I thought some of the more... And I'm going to use air quotes here, because, you know, I'm not one of the 144 people who rang the BBC. Some of the more (laughs) controversial bits were yep. done a bit heavy-handedly. Mm. But the caveat to that is, I think, for those of us who don't need to get the message, it seems heavy-handed. For those who haven't got the message yet, it needs to be heavy-handed. <laughs> you know yeah, what I, mean? <laughs> I think it, it works best when it's, uh, I suppose, you know, here it is, Davies in a nutshell. It works best when it's at the human level and it's sort of Donna and her mother and Rose in a house and her mother sort of fretting about saying the wrong thing and Donna exactly being that, protective. Yeah, yeah. It, lovely. Yeah, it, yeah. it normalises it all. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that worked a lot better than some of the stuff at the end about how Rose, like, because she's got the Time Lord stuff. She's and done the human time That's lord like yeah, being yeah, a yeah. time lord. That yeah. that just seems like it didn't really make and enough that, sense. That's what I mean. It's sort of like, yeah, right. You rammed the point point home when you did the little sort of winter soldier piece. At the time that mm. they're going binary, 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 she's going non-binary. Yeah, yeah. That that makes the point. We've had the mm. we've had the dead naming scene. Which, you know, mm-hmm. I thought, great, they've included that and shown that kind of challenge. The 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 difficulty, as you say, that Sylvia faces when she's going, the gorgeous, is that all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and that kind of thing. I, I just thought that end bit was a bit clunky and awkward and clumsy. But I think it kind of is needed to be because... You're talking about blunt instruments that are going to complain, so you need to fight them with blunt instruments. Yeah, I mean, it made me reflect that Davies's Doctor Who is not that dissimilar to the era of Doctor Who that I have always enjoyed most, which is the Sylvester McCoy era, where you frequently have stories like The Curse of Fenric or Ghostlight, where the finale is is based on working out what something is a metaphor for rather than, you know, building a big gun that destroys everything. I think the difference between Davies and a writer like Mark Platt Mm. is that Davies wants to do the metaphor and then say at the end, and this is a metaphor for... Yeah, it's a little bit like the Heat Man thing, isn't it? At the end of each episode, we yeah, yeah. going, today we learned that you don't dead name people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which also the thing with this, he kind of wrote himself into a bit of a corner where he did have to have a bit at the end to say, Oh, but also like the, the TARDIS didn't make Rose transgender. She was already a trans woman. Don't yeah. <laughs> yes. trans women yeah. are actually a thing that exists. It's not all space magic. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, I I would support a reading of Doctor Who where the Doctor's main mission is just to make the world a bit queerer. In fact, I I think that's basically what the shooty gap were years are going to be, whether they intend that to be the case or not. uh, Graham, I don't know whether you've had any um, dealings with an organisation called the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. Not well, personally, me, no. Doctor Who has spent the sec- uh, the last 60 years trying to make the world a queerer place. <laughs> Which, I mean, you joke, but it has always been like a very queer-coded thing. Oh, yeah. definitely, yeah. I mean, one of the big revelations of going back and watching the old show was watching, like something like the Stones of Blood or Mordrin Undead and thinking there is no heterosexual explanation for this. <laughs> well, I, I, was, I was talking to my son um, a few weeks ago about Doctor Who. He, he, he's never really been a fan of it. This is my youngest son. Never hmm. really been a fan. But we were talking and he, he was sort of coming around to it and enjoying some of his son. And I said, well, now that they're all an iPlayer, Go back and watch the mutants. 
Mm. Because if that was made now, that would be a metaphor for coming yes. out, would it not? Yeah, that's a good point. He even sort of turns rainbow yeah, colours yeah, I mean, at the end. Not. How woke was that for 1973? <laughs> <laughs> my favourite, one of my favourite facts about old Doctor Who is that the antimatter creature in uh, The Three Doctors was created by putting video effects over a feather boa being <laughs> twirled on a stick which is just you know, there's no need to say any more about the show, no. there's no need to write any more about the show Doctor Who is a psychedelic feather boa being twirled around on a stick that is the entirety of the show and what it Forget always will be. Forget your madman in a box <laughs> so, yeah, so so I I really enjoyed yeah. it. I, I think the use of, even though you have to assume that a lot of people watching this will either not know it's an old comic story or will have been told mm. it's an old comic story but will not have read it, I think it's a good decision for a 60th anniversary story because it allows you to do a new story with the Doctor, you know, fighting what to most people is a new alien that still has that comfortable trad who feeling yeah. underneath and also, it all. Yeah, let's, not, that's... let's not forget that the show is now co-produced by Disney and there's a whole line of meep cuddly toys available to... <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there was any pressure on him to not make that thing evil? <laughs> But yeah, I think that has been a big pitfall of like the big Doctor Who things, certainly over the past few years of going, okay, it's a big Doctor Who, it's like, you know, it's the finale, it's a special anniversary, so let's spin the wheel mm. of, is it Daleks, Cybermen, or the Master? Yeah. Yes. Or secret fourth yeah. option, a combination of the two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, think, I think that's where a lot of the anniversary specials have fallen down in the past. It's the big mm. multi-Doctor thing. You know, it. I mean that by the time of the twentieth anniversary, that concept is being held together with yes. string. By the twentieth, I, I, I love the five doctors. I yeah. think it's a hoot, but it is massively overstuffed. Yeah. So by the sixtieth anniversary, it shouldn't even be on the no. table. You can't and, do and, it. And I, and I think, but the problem with it is, you know, the anniversary specials are a great way to celebrate the fact that this show that was meant to last six weeks is still alive. Mm. But also, it's a way to say, hey, this is a thing. We're having a big celebration. Why not come and join the party and stay mm. for, for shooting yeah. run? And you can't do that with the multi-doctor ones. Because no. the new audience will go, who's the doddery old bloke in the... <laughs> yeah. And go, oh, yeah. that's Peter Capaldi. Um... <laughs> <laughs> But no, no, we know the tradition is if Peter Capaldi appears in an anniversary special, it's just his eyebrows. <laughs> ah, they should have had yes. that on one of the soft toys for you. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. That was the one thing I didn't like because uh, Rose has soft toy at the Cybermen, which is uh, all of the soft toys are based on memories that Donna has suppressed yeah. of her time with the Doctor that have been passed down through the Metacrisis. Yep, fine. Donna never met the Cybermen. 
I'm angry. I'm so angry. I was one of those 144 complainants. They lumped me in with the bigots, but I'm writing in. Um, actually, <laughs> I think you'll find that when Donna absorbed all the Doctor's memories, she She'll gained have remembered the memories Cybermen. of the Cybermen, which were then passed no. down to the <laughs> oh, Do your research, I... Graham. <laughs> Call yourself a fan. <laughs> There'll be no room on Gallifrey base for you. And that's why I said this. <laughs> We've all been evicted from there. <laughs> Effects. I thought the realisation yes. of the Meep and the Wrath Warriors and the Dagger Drive really showed the co-production deal was working. Yeah, it's, it's really yeah, weird completely. to watch Doctor Who when it actually looks good. I know. <laughs> you know, we've yeah. we've had psychedelic feather bowers in the past. <laughs> yeah. Now we've got an animatronic meat. Well, a sort of combination, isn't it? It's a combination, yeah. And I was surprised at how much of it was animatronic, which I don't know why I was surprised because it it looks physical, it looks real. There's never a moment where you doubt it was there, but. I guess it's just so mobile and so expressive yeah. and the CGI's blended incredibly. Yeah, yeah like, there's a bit, because I, I was just re-watching it ahead of the show, where the reveal happens that the Meeps, the baddie, and just that transition yeah. from, like, the kind of droopy-eared, wide-eyed, ooh, I'm just the Meep, don't hurt me, to, like, ears up. Die, everybody! I'm the Meep of the Meep, I will kill you all. And also some great test, a great testimony to, uh, I mean, not that any was needed, to Miriam Magaly's acting chops. I mean, well, to, yeah, she, she it, it like is she was easy. Having an last. <laughs> She's having a lovely it day. It is out. easy to forget that Miriam Margulies is both an excellent actor and a particularly excellent voiceover actor, and this is this is proof of just how good and versatile she is, because you know. When, even when it turns evil, the meep still sounds like yeah. the meep. It's, there's a consistency to it. It's not like she becomes a totally different character. It has to, like, fi- she has to find some way to bridge the gap between this thing being an adorable ball of fluff yeah. and this thing being a violent psychopath. And, yeah, nails it. It's perfect. It's such a great performance. And, you see, you're right about um, Miriam being a great voice actor. The first voice character I remember her playing on TV. I know where this was is the going. the Cadbury's Go Caramel Rabbit on yes. TV adverts in the 70s. After, after the, the recording, Google them, Andrew. And then remember yeah. that that voice is Miriam Margulis. It is astonishing, looking back at the Cadbury's Caramel adverts, to realise that furries only became a thing in the 21st century. Because that advert was really trying to create oh, no. a generation of furries. Is this going to awaken some uncomfortable feelings? It, 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 unquestionably. Yeah. Well, well, questionably, perhaps. But... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Miriam Margulis as one of the last great British eccentrics, but her personality can overshadow her achievements, yeah. and it's it's nice that there is that, that she got this showcase in 
a show whose fans always remember the guest stars yeah. and that she was so great. Yeah, because I know that was probably one of my concerns going in. That, oh, is this just going to be Miriam Margulies being Miriam Margulies? But no, she is actually no. yes. playing a character. Yeah, and and, and, yeah, and, and that's one thing I like about this here, uh, this era of Doctor Who as well. We had celebrities cast in the eighties in various roles, mm. and I'm not talking about casting like proper character actors who, you know, like Bernard Breslau as an Ice Warrior and stuff like that. I'm talking about mm. we had stunt casting in the eighties. Dodd. Yes, that's very. <laughs> what? Yeah. It, it was. You, you, you're going after all of the ones that I think works. I think the the weirdest bit of casting in 80s Doctor Who is where they had like a, a gritty James Cameron wannabe sort of Dalek action epic set among space cargo ships and they cast Rodney Bewes from whatever happened to well, the actually, Likely that, Lads. That, to, my, to my mind is where the rot setting was that casting. Mm. And it the 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 point is Hale and Pace weren't known as actors. They were known as comedians. No. Um Ken Dodd, mm. similarly, not a huge acting repertoire. I know it bits and pieces, mm. but it wasn't huge. But it, it seemed to be like if you wanted to be a guest star on Doctor Who in the in the late eighties, you had to be a star of Saturday night Saturday Night Light Entertainment Show. I was amazed Danny LaRue didn't play Helen in. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's own Sheila Hancock's performance is only a hair away, it has to be said. But, but again, Sheila Hancock, great casting because, again, you know, oh god, excellent yeah. acting job. Yeah. Um, Jean Marsh as uh, Morgan, brilliant. Mm. But it was mm. those light entertainment characters. Uh, Jessica Martin as the werewolf character in um, Psychic Circus. Great yeah, show, great in, show galaxy. in the galaxy. Yeah. It, that was stunt casting to me. It was trying to draw mm. a different audience in to to boost the figures. Yeah. The casting now is not stunt casting. It's we need this character played. They'll nail it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, in in terms of the other cast members in the episode, I think Ruth Madeley. Yeah. I, I've liked Ruth Madeley for a yes. long time. Um. She's very good in Then Barbara Met Alan, uh, which is a TV film well worth digging out if you haven't seen it. Um, but yeah, Eunice has always been one of those fun bits of Doctor Who for me. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I like that there is an organisation yeah. on Earth that the Doctor can call in as backup. And here's one thing that I was surprised by when I reread The Star Beast. I had forgotten that the detail with the Meep possessing people to work on its ship is actually in the yeah. original. I thought that was a fun new twist that Davies had added. Uh, and I suppose I forgot it because it's so differently placed in yeah. the comic. Yeah, it's, it's quite like, a late in the comic, in the comic isn't it? Yeah. And it's people you don't know as well. It's just a late reveal that the Meep has enslaved people, which is basically a lead into him doing it to yeah. Shaman, which is the whole point of why this happens. And in the TV version, it's actually a very effective piece of stakes-upping yeah. uh, because 
you've got this organization unit that you know a certain type of fan will always hold a warm place in his heart for and suddenly they're all possessed straight away yeah. you know it massively ups the danger yeah. i think it's a very clever yeah. new I also thing think it's interesting even if the because i mean the the one thing about unit is in the past they are mm-hmm. consistently without fail absolutely useless well oh it's actually it's a bunch of men with guns that's quite scary you say that yeah one of unit's finest moments consists of the brigadier pointing at an animated gargoyle and saying chap with the wings there five rounds rapid and the soldier fires five rounds rapid and hits every time he's not one of your bloody imperial stormtroopers from lesser sci-fi franchises all right, Mick, now explain what those five bullets do to the guy. Absolutely, gargoyle. bugger all, because it's made of stone and it's possessed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he hit. <laughs> That's, that actually leads into one of my favourite things about both the comic version and the TV version, in that it uses those sort of sci familiar sort of sci fi action cheats. Yes as clues as to what the Wrath Warriors are doing. In the comics, we hear them think, you know, they they shoot at the Doctor, they need to shoot at the Doctor for a, a sort of subterfuge they're running, but they, they say to each other, you know, make sure you miss, don't actually hit him. And in this one, you've got alien weapons that we are shown can take the back off Donna's house, but are somehow totally useless against yeah. the taxi the Doctor drives away at. And you know, you sort of think, oh, yeah, that's convenient. And then in the very next scene, the Doctor brings that up yeah. again and reveals that that is actually, you know, something you should have realised was a clue to a crucial plot yeah. twist. And I love yeah. that. And I, I think the whole thing was brilliantly well executed. Um, start to finish, mm. everything from the effects, the music. And Murray Gold's back and the music wasn't overpowering. Um, <laughs> maybe in that one yeah I, I remember thinking when Murray Gold came back our long national nightmare of being able to hear the dialogue in Doctor Who is finally coming to an end uh, but yeah his star beast score is, is quite tasteful I yeah. think um, so yeah I think I think it was great I think I think obviously in, in terms of the cast of characters there's been some tweaks made to make it more TV friendly and to to mm. link into that Doctor Donna story, missed opportunity for merchandising though. They could have licensed kebab houses across the country to do the Doctor Donna kebab. It'll be bigger on the inside. <laughs> yes, and it also kills you if you ever remember it. Which, which, let's be honest, any good kebab will. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, a pretty solid thumbs yeah. up, I would say. Other than other than those sort of slightly on the nose aspects of the ending, are there any? Is there anything that we didn't really like here? I'm still undecided on the new title sequence. It's a kind of title it's a sequence. kind of hybrid yeah. sort of bastard love child of Matt Smith's and um, early Tenant. Yeah, 
I think in in general, I, I sort of miss the days when the Doctor Who title sequence was saying weird rather than yeah. big. But you know, as as big title sequences and themes go, I think it's pretty neat. Um, oh, and the other thing I didn't really like, and I, 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 I believe that Disney asked for this, the Doctor standing in the middle of space explaining the previous plot. I really like that. I think one of the things that Doctor Who doesn't get enough credit for is that it is becoming more experimental in the way that it tells its stories. You can see that in stuff like Before the Flood and Can You Hear Me, where they have like to camera addresses and animated sequences. I thought it was a fun little continuation from that. I yeah, it, it, it's just because, um, and I don't know whether it's a true um, report or not, but my understanding is that Disney asked for that to be included. Well, I can see why, but I think they, they handled it pretty elegantly. I'd rather that, if you, if you have to do a big info dump, I would much rather that you did something big and fourth wall breaking and non-naturalistic like that, rather than the sort of usual thing you see, which is, well, as you know... <laughs> so. so. Yeah, where do, how how do we fit this on the scale? Because there there is an element that makes you want to say that Doctor Who can only be judged against other Doctor Who that it's its own ecosystem at this point, really. Yeah. But then we mentioned that branching out into you know meeting Death Hawk and yeah, yeah, true. I yeah, I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna rank this on our list of TV shows. Which goes ah. from the Sandman at number one, uh, all the way down to Inhumans at number thirty-four. Because God, of course, bloody Inhumans is at the bottom. <laughs> because as as much as I've joked about it through the show, kind of we have all seen all three of the specials, so yeah. I think we mm. can kind of judge it using that as well. Yeah, that's very true. Yes, yeah. This is going to be tough for me because I've watched Jack All TV. Uh, so, Mick Andrew. So, so uh, um, what, what's below Sandman? Well, uh, top five then are Sandman at number one, Moon Knight at number two, Peacemaker at number three, WandaVision at number four, and Jessica Jones season one at number five. Graham, what do you think about these TV shows of which you've watched none of? <laughs> you must have watched Sam, man, yeah. surely. No? No. No, no I'm, I'm not a TV I guy. I know you're not a TV guy, but I thought you'd have made an exception for a game and epic. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I should do. Yeah, every now and then I, I look at the cast and think, why haven't you already watched this? So, yeah, one day, maybe. Um, I think... I mean, I quite flippantly said number two, but I think in terms of... First of all, it's a nice self-contained episode. Um, mm. And so it's easy to re-watch. You don't have to do a whole season of it. Um, yeah. So I think... I, I'm, I'm, I'd be happy with a number two. I'm more likely well, to... Well, I mean, you are of that age now. <laughs> 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 I 
I'm more I'm more likely to rewatch the Star Beast than the entire season of Moon Knight, which you know had its moments where it felt a bit uneven. Oh. Yeah, and I mean, this episode made me remember that I do actually love Doctor Who, so I'm I'm happy to give it a high spot. Hey, I'm very happy That's with the first that. Time he's ever agreed with my placing without any argument. <laughs> I know it's except in humans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what can you say about humans? But, but you can't fly in the face of facts now, can you? No. Yeah, Doctor Who, the Star Beast, is going in as our new number two. Yeah, hey! Nice. And I think Russell Davies would be happy with that, coming second only to Neil Gaiman. Yeah, prestigious uh, company to, to fall slightly short yeah. of, isn't it? It is indeed. Cool. Well, I think that's about it from us then. If you want to listen to more, you can find our episodes on the feed or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe to the show, you'll make sure you never miss an episode. If you want to get in touch, our email is beholdpod at gmail.com. And if you're a fan, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review on your podcast app of choice, or even just recommended us to a friend. It's the best way for us to grow as a show and reach new listeners. So, that's everything. Until next time, I've been Andrew. I've been Mick. And I've been Graham. So long, and thanks for listening.